Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a standalone sermon on the Lord's Supper, and this is the first Sunday of the month. We, as is our tradition, receive the Lord's Supper together generally on the first Sunday of the month. And so as we're taking a short summer break from our series through Hebrews, I thought it would be good for us to revisit and to think deeply about what we're doing when we do this all-important task of coming together around the Lord's table on the first Sunday of the month. Then next week, we're going to get into a short summer series say that 10 times fast, a short summer series of following Jesus, various encounters in the Gospels, and some of the other guys are going to be preaching, Reuben will be preaching next week, and then Robert and Tyler and myself, we're kind of sharing that series, and then Lord willing, in August, we're going to get back into Hebrews. Here's the outline for today. We're going to read a classic, really the classic passage on communion in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We're diving down into the middle of 1 Corinthians 11. We preached through it about 12 years ago. I'm sure you guys remember that series well. Uh, but we're diving down right into the middle of 1 Corinthians 11, so I'm going to give you a little context of what's going on before we read it. But here's the outline. I think the, the text that we're going to read, verses 17 through 34, breaks down into three divisions, and we're going to kind of think along these lines as I read and stop and explain. First, Paul talks about divisions in the church. Then secondly, he talks about instruction, specific instruction on how and what we're to think about when we're receiving the Lord's Supper. And then thirdly, he's going to talk about examination, specifically self-examination, the, the real heart of what we're doing when we come together to receive this meal of the bread and the cup. So let me pray, and we're going to get right into the text. Lord, thank you for this day. You have ordained June 4th, 2023 in your book before it came to be for every one of us in this room. Everybody is here for a purpose, for your divine, good, providential purpose. Lord, would you give us focus now? Would you help me? I pray that you would admonish the idle, that you would encourage the faint-hearted, that you would help and strengthen the weak, and that you would give spiritual life to any that might be spiritually dead in this room that we would see and savor the beauty of Christ as we think about communion. And that today as we receive the elements together as a church family, as believers gathered together, that beautiful, eternal, wonderful things would happen. Bondage-breaking things, liberating things would happen in our soul this morning. I pray it all for your name, for your glory, and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Before I do, 1 Corinthians is one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. Obviously, it's written to the church in Corinth. And one of the things that's remarkable about Paul's letter, especially his first letter to the Corinthians, is what a mess the church in Corinth is, which I find just really encouraging. He he spends the first part of the first chapter encouraging them and telling them how much he loves them and all the good that he sees in them. And then he spends basically the next 14 and a half chapters just absolutely unloading on them and giving it to them. 
But it's, in a way, isn't that wonderfully encouraging that, that, that messy churches like the church at Corinth are the type of churches that God loves? And so he's correcting them. One of the major themes in Corinthians was the division, the factions in the church, and the selfishness in the church. They were a very gifted group of people in a lot of different ways, spiritually gifted. And, uh, but... Part of what marked their life as a church was a kind of self-centeredness, a kind of me-firstness to them, and a, and a carnality that flowed out of their selfishness, and Paul is very concerned about that. And we saw that in their spiritual gifts, the way that they sort of used them for their own personal sort of glory, uh, how they had sort of factions, they followed different personalities in the church. And here in chapter 11, he is giving them instruction on what they were to do when they were to receive the Lord's Supper. Now, this is obviously, it finds its roots in the Last Supper in John. Remember when we looked at John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, is this Last Supper where Jesus is, is with his disciples on the night that he's betrayed, the, before he's about to be crucified, and he then has this last meal with his disciples, and he breaks the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, and he takes the cup, and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is for you, and that is actually hearkening back to the Old Testament, to the, the exodus of Israel from Egypt, the Passover, when God, the night before he frees Israel from Egypt, he, he tells them to take a, a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb, and to, to sacrifice that lamb, and to take the blood of the lamb, and to put it on the doorposts of their homes, and when the angel of the Lord would see the blood on the doorposts of the houses of the people of Israel, he would pass over, in other words, he would not kill the firstborn son of that household. So there's this, when he sees the blood, he passes over and they were to eat the meat of this perfect lamb. And then after that, God frees them from Egyptian captivity. And so what's going on in the Passover, the, the exodus from Egypt, is a kind of shadow that's pointing to this last supper in the Gospels where Christ is the perfect Passover lamb, by the blood, spares us from God's wrath, and we are to feast on him. And now this is now instituted in the New Testament church, and now God's people are instructed to when they gather regularly, as often as they do it, different churches have different practices, whether it's weekly or monthly or maybe less frequently, we do it monthly here, but we are to come and we are to specifically do something and remember something specific. And that's the instructions that Paul is giving the church here in 1 Corinthians. That was a little too long of a lead up. Let's get into the text. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And I want you to think about divisions here in the church. Paul's about to give it to him. I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Imagine that being sound like cross point. When you guys gather together on Sunday, you're actually doing more harm than good. Basically, that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. That's not a good thing to be said about your, your church gatherings. For in the first place, verse 18, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you. This is interesting. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you 
may be recognized. So in a strange sort of way, Paul is actually saying that the factions among you are actually working out for the good, the sifting, the, the, the kind of uh, purification of the church because it's sorting out the good from the bad, which is quite a thought. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So a little background on what's going on here. Likely in the church in Corinth, this is way before church buildings. This is way before a setting like we would have where we're gathered together in a church building that we would regularly meet at. They were going to be gathered in somebody's home. And because the church had grown a little bit, it was likely the home of a wealthy person who was a Christian, uh, who was wealthy. And because of that, they probably were, were, were traveling in certain social circles and then there was people from all stripes of life coming to faith in Jesus. And so the church in Corinth is a mixture, like every church, like this church is, praise God, of people from different a stratosphere of the socioeconomic level. And the church, though, is gathering likely in the home of a wealthier person because it was likely a bigger home that could accommodate uh, more people. And what's going on here is, I think, under, underlining all of this, Paul is is, is critiquing the sort of division that is intangibly happening in the life of the church amongst those that have a lot and those that have nothing. It seems like these rich people are, 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 are you know, having this sort of grand feast for themselves and they're selfishly indulging in it and they're leaving nothing for their poor brothers and sisters who are coming maybe even later, midway through the service after they had to get off from their day jobs. And Paul is incensed. And he's saying, listen, you're turning this meal, this time when you're coming together to remember the Lord and what he's done for you, and then remember one another, and you're turning it into a self-indulgent party where you are exalting yourself, and you are humiliating, and you're despising the poor. And so clearly he's upset with them. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, uh, certainly we have different socioeconomic levels in this church and in every church, but I don't think this particular situation it, it applies to us, especially when we come to the Lord's table. But certainly, in various ways, the point, the principle here is not that when we gather together for the Lord's Supper that the wealthier among us are catering in, you know, I don't know, carabas or whatever, and the rest of us are bringing, you know, uh, you know, bologna sandwiches from, from Subway, I don't know. The application is, is that there is a kind of tilt, regardless of where you are socioeconomically, towards selfishness. And Paul is wanting to say to us, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is wanting to say to Christians throughout the century that when you come together as a local church, you are to have a Christ focus and an otherly focus to you, to you. Beware of the selfishness on so many levels that can grip our hearts. And why is church unity along these lines so critical for us? Well, the context in first century Corinth was it was a wicked culture. It was a pagan culture. 
It was an indulgent culture. It was a carnal culture, a very sinful culture. And one of the implicit reasons that Paul is so concerned with the, with the unity of the church is because they were, they were in a hostile world. And friends, if that was the case in first century Corinth, how much more so for us? The, 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 the implications of our life together as a church are so much more important. Our unity together, our connectedness, our, our, our one anotherness as a church is so much more important, I think, than we, we maybe ordinarily are aware of. Friends, we live in a culture that has always been against us, but is increasingly hostile towards the supremacy of Christ. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't like to mention sometimes a lot of public examples or obvious uh, current examples because I don't want you to get all riled up and start thinking about something like, yeah, tell them, Brad, and then we kind of forget the main point of the text. But certainly you've been aware of just this, this wickedness that's going on in some, a major retail store, Target, where they're, this month, this Pride Month of June, where they're uh, getting in some controversy for promoting clothing that is basically trying trying to catechize, is trying to disciple our children into really this satanic notion, this, this horrific notion, this wicked notion that you can somehow change your gender. And this is the world we live in. I, as many of you know, I grew up in Southern California. I was a, a lifelong Dodger fan. I say that in the past. I was a lifelong Dodger fan. The Dodgers were wonderful when I was growing up. Garvey was at first. Lopes was at second. Ron Say was at third. Bill Russell was at short. Jaeger was behind the plate, and they were great. <laughs> but the Dodgers, if you've heard in the news, recently for Pride Month, invited some basically satanic group called the Sisters of the Indulgence or something like that. It's a group that is mocking Catholicism, mocking Catholic nuns, dressing up in some sort of sadistic sexual costumes to mock the crucifix, to mock, really mock Christ. And the Dodgers are inviting them. And, and listen to this, the Dodgers were going to give them some sort of community hero award. This is the world we live in. And so how, what does this have to do with church unity? Well, Christians, friends, we, can't li- we cannot live in this world just kind of basically sort of connected, kind of dipping in, getting a little sermon a couple Sundays out of the month, not really knowing anybody, just kind of living an individual life. You cannot live like that. The church will not thrive with a bunch of self-centered, consumeristic, dip-in-occasionally-mildly-connected Christians. It just won't work. It won't work. You guys know every Saturday night, just to kind of calm my nerves, I watch BBC Planet Earth. And don't pity the poor antelope that wanders off from the herd. Pity the poor antelope. And there he goes, that guy with the British accent, David Attenborough, whatever his name is. There he goes, there he goes. And then the lion's creeping up. Bam! It never ends well when you separate yourself from the herd. And friends... The world is in unison. And the unity in the church is so important. You need a tribe of people that will encourage you. 
you need a tribe of people that you can be real with. And, and in just a second, we're going to look at the elements of what Paul is instructing us to do. You need a, a group of people that you can sing to and that sing to you, as Paul said, as, as, and as Tyler said, and that we are together in this and we believe these things and we're linking arms and a grace-filled culture that spurs us on and who, who don't who don't fight over silly stuff and, 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 and get on each other for petty little things, friends. The, the unity of the churches is something to be fought for. And Paul is calling the church to that. Let's keep going. Instruction. Now he's going to zero in on what we're doing. Verse 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, so he's, he's hearkening back, specifically to the Gospels, where Jesus gives this instruction. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Now, he's speaking metaphorically here. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, a little background here. Again, this is clearly, even though Paul was not a Christian at the time, he was a a religious zealot uh, bent on killing Christians, a religious Jewish leader who didn't, who wasn't following Jesus during Jesus' life on earth. Then in Acts chapter 9, Jesus returns from heaven, knocks him off his donkey. He's converted. He gets personal instruction from Jesus. He receives from the Lord the instruction that Jesus gave to the disciples in the Gospels on the night that he was betrayed. And now Paul is recounting this, and he's He's focusing our attention. He says, do this. Jesus is telling, he's reminding us of what Jesus has said. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, do this. Take this cup and take this bread. Eat the bread, drink the cup, and do it. How? For what purpose? In remembrance of me. There's something specific that we are called by Jesus to do. This is not merely a tradition. It's not just a ritual that we do on the first Sunday of the month. We're specifically called by Jesus to do something, to remember him. So what does it mean to remember what Jesus has done? Well, thoughtful Christians through the centuries have thought very clearly about what it means to remember Jesus. And, and, and there's a few things that are going on in the life of the church, in the history of the church, as Christians have sought to apply what Jesus means here in remembering him when we receive this meal. The first thing is, when we remember him, we think of, we think of his, this bread and this cup as a, as a sign. The English Puritans called it a, a perpetual display. It's a, it's a sign. So at the most core level, the bread and the cup is a sign. It's a it's a physical display of the body, the broken body, and the blood of Jesus for our sins. So it's a, it's a picture. 
It's a visual object lesson of the gospel itself. So when we come to this table, we want to train our thoughts towards the cross, what Jesus has done, that on Jesus' body, physical body, he became just like us. He endured everything that we endure, yet without sin, and his perfect, obedient, sinless flesh was broken for us on the cross. And so when we take that piece of bread, we're to, we're to think about that sign. It's to be a sign of the cross. Jesus' broken body and his spilled blood for us. His body bore our stripes. We are healed spiritually by Jesus' broken body. And now the new covenant of grace, this new way of dealing with his people, is signed in the blood of Christ. And so it's a picture of that. First, it's a sign. But it's not just a sign, it's not just a display, it's meant also to be a seal. And the the reformers, the the Puritans talked about communion in in this way as a sign and a seal. So that's a sign, it's a sign of the cross, what Jesus, it's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. But it's also a seal. What does that mean, a seal? Don't think of it so much like a lid that you put on top of something, but think of a seal as being like an authentication, like a like a Roman, you know, governor sending a letter and stamping his seal on it, or, or a wedding ring saying, this person is mine, or a heavenly notary of public stamping that, saying that this is mine. And so when we, when we look at the bread and we look at the cup and we take them, it's not just a sign of what Jesus has done, but it is a kind of confirmation for the believer that this is for you and if you come by faith and eat this bread and drink this cup it doesn't save you you're already saved it does it doesn't actually give you any saving grace but it reminds you it assures your heart that God because he has made you alive given you faith no matter what you're doing in that moment God has set his seal on you he's marked you as his and so we don't just come, just kind of, well, this is the first Sunday I'm going to come, and I'm going to take the bread, and I'm, I'm, I'm in this moment of struggling with sin, not all that I want to be, striving to live more for him. It's a reminder that he has set his seal on me through his son. It's not just a sign, and it's not just a seal, but it's, it's clearly a spiritual nourishment. Jesus says in John chapter 6, there's this wonderful sermon, it's a hard sermon that Jesus is preaching, and and, and, and there's a lot of debate as to whether Jesus is actually referring to communion when he gives this sermon. Um, I, I think he's probably not, but clearly the principle is, is there. And what's going on in John chapter, chapter 6 is Jesus feeds the multitudes, just multiplies the loaves and the fishes, thousands of people, out of just a couple loaves and fishes, follows that up by walking on water, and then he gets to the other side of the lake, and there's still some people. And then he preaches a hard sermon in John chapter 6 after these two miracles. And he's basically saying, don't just come to me for the sign, but come to me that you might eat my flesh and drink my blood. So he's speaking metaphorically there. He said, in other words, he's saying, he's saying, subsist on me. Get all of your nourishment from it. Feed on me and my holiness and my teaching and who I am. Live by me is what he's saying. And and the crowd was like, oh, well, we just saw you feed a bunch of people and walk on some water, but ah, I don't know, that's a hard sermon. And they walk away. 
And he says to the disciples, are you going to go too? And they say, well, where else? Peter says, where else can we go? But the picture, I think, that's happening of John chapter 6 about Jesus as the bread from heaven is that when we look, when we take this bread in this cup, it's not merely, think about this in the moment. Think about this when we take this in just a moment. It's not merely pointing back to what Jesus has done on the cross to atone for our sin, to bear, this is the gospel, that God in his holiness would pour out the wrath that should have been ours because we are sinners. Instead, he pours it out on Jesus. He, his body's broken for us. His blood is spilt for us. He rescues us, reconciles us. He makes us, he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. As, as Rick prayed this morning, we are now his by faith. It's not just looking back. It's not just confirming me now, but it is this nourishment where I say that I cannot live. I am confessing when I come to this table that I cannot live on autopilot. I can't live merely by this one-time decision in the past, but I need Jesus afresh today. I need to feast on Jesus today. I need his word. I need his people, and I need to remember that his spirit abides in me. And when we come to the table and we eat the bread and we drink the cup, not only is it a sign of what he's done, not only is it a seal assuring us of that we are his, but it is our confession that we need his nourishment today. Today. We feast on Christ. The gospel is not just say something, confess something at one point in your life, and then move on by yourself, and then at the end, God will, you know, he'll, he'll, we, we, you'll reunite. No, it's every day manna from heaven. Jesus is my, is bread from heaven. And then finally, it's, it's not just this personal thing. This is where I think a lot of American Christians, because we're such individualistic society, such individualistic people, is that, listen to me, this is, this is so big. And, 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 I, and I think that the, the great misunderstanding in the Christian church is not because of the people, but it's because I think of the idolatry of much of leadership in the American church. We want big crowds. We want people to make us feel good. And so we, 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 we individualize everything, we, can, we make it consumeristic, and, and, and we just want to assuage our insecure pastoral egos, and it's wrecked much of the American church. I'm not against a big church. I would love for more people to come to faith in Jesus. I'm just saying that I think what underlines a lot of American Christianity is the feeding by pastors and church leadership of this individualism to just kind of give people sort of this individual thing that they want. And although certainly Christ meets us as individuals, what is sort of the often um, missed application of the Lord's table is that we are coming together as a family meal. This is not a drive-through where we are in our own cars we are together as a family. And so the Reformers and the English Puritans saw it as a bond and pledge clearly to Christ, but to one another. So we're coming as a family meal. It's a family meal. We're gathering around the table as a family 
of Christians. And part of Paul's rebuke is that they were sort of selfishly indulging, only caring about themselves or their little group, and they didn't have the whole church in mind. And so when we come to this table, the doing this, the remembering of Jesus clearly is involving the sign of the gospel. I look at the bread and the cup, and I remember what he's done with my sin. It's the seal. He gives me assurance as I'm fighting sin. It causes me to remember that I need his nourishment daily, but it also causes me to look around and say, oh, I'm with everybody here. We're in this together, and I need them, and they need me. It's this mutual connectedness that when we take this meal, we fight to care more for others than we care about ourselves. And then finally in verse 26, uh, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So collectively, we're, we're also doing something really powerful. We're, 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 we're preaching the gospel. And especially with a, a crowd this size, a group of people this size, there's, look, there's certainly people here that are not yet believers, I would imagine. It's just kind of the law of averages. And some of you, some of you, uh, probably know yourself consciously to not yet be a believer. You're investigating Christianity. You're coming. You're so welcome. I'm glad you're here. Some of you, actually, may think that you're a believer, but you're not. You're self-deceived. You've kind of heard a weak, watered-down version of the gospel, and you've never really heard about the holiness of God and the exclusivity of Christ and your helplessness before a holy God, and that He alone is the one who can draw you and give you a new heart that, so you can believe. And so what happens in moments like this, hopefully every Sunday in the preaching of the word, but especially when we receive the Lord's table, is that there's this element that verse 26 is speaking of that you, if you are an unbeliever, whether you realize it or not, you're in a kind of evangelistic crusade. It's meant to have that sort of aspect or that dimension to it that you're with a group of people and you're hearing things like you'll hear in just a second about examining yourself saying, don't come to this unworthily. Don't come to this table if you're not truly trusting in Christ because if you do, you're going you're gonna to heap judgment upon yourself. It's meant to be not a dumbing down of the standard saying, oh, well, if you're here, you know, God loves you. It's okay. Just, you know, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's meant to actually draw a line and to say that what we're doing here is not just a religious ritual, but it's a clear statement of the gospel where we are saying that you're a sinner, we're all sinners, and that our only hope is Christ, and our only hope is the death of Christ. And the Son of God, God himself came, bore the wrath of God, and only, only those who are trusting in him are united to him. They are his. He nourishes them. He atones for their sin and he promises as we sung to bring them all the way home. And we proclaim together, we proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. So we're going somewhere. This life is not all that there is. And so if you are not a believer and you're here on a day when we receive the Lord's Supper, it's actually meant to be a kind of evangelistic sermon to you to see we're proclaiming the Lord's death. This is the way. He is the one. And he's coming back. Trust in Jesus. And part of that call, part of that call, which we'll get to in just a second, 
which runs counterculture oftentimes to our church culture, which just wants to say, hey, everybody's accepted, everybody's fine, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, you'll figure it out. Part of the, actually the most loving thing that we can do as a church family is to be real clear about what it means to be a believer, to be united to Christ, and what it, what, what it, what it isn't. And that's what Paul gets into next, examination. Let's read. Whoever, therefore, verse 27, whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Those are severe words. Now listen to this, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction, directions when I come. Okay, let me try and do this quickly. What does Paul mean here in verse 27 when he says, listen, whoever eats, if they do it in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 29 to say that if you do this without discerning the body, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. What does that mean? Well, through the history of the church, there's been several thoughts about that. Uh, Clearly, I think it means certainly would have application to somebody who doesn't believe. So that's why every Sunday when we receive the Lord's Supper, we do what's called fencing the table. We put a kind of verbal fence around the table, and we say to anybody, listen, we're so glad that you're here, but if you're not believing in Jesus, if you're not trusting in Jesus, if you are not a follower of Christ, if you're not a born-again Christian, you should not come to this table. You should not eat it. Not because we don't love you. Not because we aren't glad that you're here. Actually, we love you a lot, and we don't want you, by the way, we are sloppy with our preaching and teaching of the word, to to actually do verse 27. We don't want you to, in unbelief, come and think that somehow there's some sort of magic spiritual thing going on just by this this, this Christian ritual that you somehow sort of participated in. That's clearly an unworthy manner. But I think actually, although that certainly applies, what Paul probably has in mind here more is he's probably thinking about the Christians that he criticized in the Corinthian church in verses 17 through 22, these professing Christians who are selfish They're saying that they're trusting in Christ, but they're not acting like it at all. They are, because of the way that they're living out life in community, they are despising the church of God, and they are humiliating those that are below them socially. 
And that's where I think in verse 29 he picks up and he says, if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body. Now, what does that mean? That's been a debated, debated phrase. Is he talking about without discerning who Christ is or the body of Christ, the church? Well, I'm not sure exactly which Paul had in mind, but regardless of how we, what we think Paul is saying there, whether he's talking about, look, you're going about this haphazardly, not really understanding who Jesus is, or you're going about it selfishly, not really considering your brothers and sisters, regardless of what Paul actually meant in verse 29, both of those things are true. Both of those things are true. And so maybe there's intended to be a kind of vagueness for broad application there. That Look, don't come to this table not really understanding who Jesus is, what he has done, and what you are doing and saying when you take this bread and cup. Remember what you're saying. You're saying that my only hope is Christ on the cross to absorb the wrath of God for my sin. And it's a confirmation, it's a seal to me, and it's me confessing that I need him daily as my nourishment. And it's me saying that I'm part of a family. Don't come in a haphazard way, undiscerning, doing that just because this is what you think you're supposed to do. And I think also possibly, possibly, maybe a Christian can be very aware of what Christ has done, or a person can be very aware of what Christ has done, and they can be very aware of others around them. But there can be this kind of rebellion in their heart. This kind of secret hiddenness to their heart. Where they are continuing to persist in willful rebellion against God. And when they do that... They say all the right things. They act lovingly towards Christians around them. They can confess the right gospel. But there's this inner resistance. This persistent rebellion in their heart. They continue in their rebellion against God. Inwardly, even though Publicly, they may say the right things. Now, only the Lord can judge. It's, it's obvious that Christians can be and fall into times of grievous sin. I don't know whether the description I just stated applies to you. And I don't know if it does apply to you, whether or not you're truly born again and just going through a time of grievous backsliding or you're self-deceived and you need to be born again for the first time. Regardless, Whatever the state, if that describes you, that is an unworthy way to come to the Lord's table. Don't. Don't take this meal if that describes you. But what unworthy does not mean, listen to me now, listen to me, dear ones, what it does not mean, it does not mean the Christian who is fighting with all of their might and sometimes failing terribly against sin. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that that person, this, this, is the, this is the opposite of what communion means. It does not mean you get your act together 
And then when you have reached a certain level of relative sanctification and holiness, then you can come, then you can come. Friends, that is not what this means. This table, this meal is for people who are beat up, who are struggling, who are striving, who many times are failing, but they're taking God's side against their sin. They're hating their sin, and they're wanting. This table is meant not for those that have arrived, but are those who are getting beat up, and it's meant as a means of grace to be part of the lever of God's grace that breaks you free from that bond. And it's meant to cause you to look up to the display, the sign of what Jesus, to remind you. So you're in the pit of sin and you feel so unworthy. You're trapped by some hidden thing. And God intends this meal for you, for you. Now you're, not, you're, not, you're not in this some sort of uh, way hurting your heart against God, faking it as you go along, acting like you're a Christian, but in your heart you're not. It's for the struggler who is saying, God, I need you, I need you. And it's meant to get your eyes off of yourself so that you'd put your eyes on Jesus, so that you'd grab a hold of him and that you would see him. And as we sing that song that you're saying, my sin is atoned for. It's his, it's on his shoulders. He took it away and his righteousness is mine and I am his and he is mine. That's for the sinner. It's for the sinner to come and to be freed and to be renewed and to receive the grace of God afresh. There's this wonderful old story where Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher back in London, uh, back in the mid-1900s, he tells the story of this Scottish preacher named John Duncan who preached back in Scotland which is generally where, where Scottish preachers preach <laughs> uh, back in the, like, the early 1700s. And John Duncan, they called him Rabbi Duncan, not because he was a Jewish rabbi, but I don't know, just some nickname, because I guess he was a good teacher or something. And uh, he was preaching a communion service to his church, and there was this woman in the back of the service that he noticed was not taking and he knew her life. He knew she was struggling with some sins. And she was weeping in the back of the church. And she was refusing to come to the table. And John Duncan, Pastor Duncan, went to the back of the congregation. And he said to the woman, his real mild-mannered, sweet, gentle guy, which made this so out of character. He said to the woman as she was weeping, thinking that she, that the table wasn't for sinners, thinking that she was trapped in her sin, wanting God's grace, but examining herself and saying, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't go. And Pastor Duncan went up to her. She's sitting in the back of the sanctuary, crying, seemingly stuck in her guilt. And he leans down to her and he says, Woman, take Eat, take, eat. This is for you. And friends, that's all the theology of the table. Take, eat. This is for you. Are you a young soldier trapped in lust, beaten up by 
idolatry and pornography, wrecked by sexual sin, and you hate your sin, and you wonder whether or not you will ever be free of it, and you want Jesus, but you feel unworthy, but you want Jesus, take and eat, turn away from yourself, trust in Christ. Are you a young mother? And gosh, man, it's, it's hard to be a young mother these days. You, you young mothers are so racked with mommy guilt, it is almost unbearable. And you, 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 you see all your wonderful, cute little friends with their shiny babies on Facebook, and your house is a train wreck. And you're, you're, you, you, you couldn't find yourself out of a laundry basket if we gave you a head start. And you, you've begun to listen to the accusations of the enemy and you start to think that you're a failure and that, that you, 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 and you just, you are wrecked. Take and eat. And tie those feelings and bring them to the table and look up and say, this is what Jesus has done for me. I am his and I can be nourished not by the latest mommy book that I got to read to add to my list of religious guilt, but I'm going to be nourished by Christ. Are you uh, a pretty squared away, maybe well-to-do, upper middle class Christian? You've settled into life at Crosspoint. Everything seems to be going good. You serve occasionally, but you got a grumpy attitude. You fuss. Listen to me. You fuss on one Sunday out of four or five months when we have children in here because it interrupts you and it distracts you, and you are so persnickety and selfish, you're just tough to be around. What are you supposed to do? Get grumpy? Sit out next time we have children in the church? Fade away? No, you're, you're to take and eat. You're to come. You're to come. You're to come and you're to see that. And you're to say, oh, this, i got to discern the body. i got to look at everybody around me. This is not about me. This is not about me. This is about Christ crucified and the people that I'm in this with. And we need to be together. Let's come. Let's take. Let's eat. Let's eat. <laughs> are, you a, are you a preacher? Are you a preacher who who is so prone to idolatry and the fear of man, and you grind and you grind and you grind, and it just seems like there's no rest for your soul. You know anybody like that? Take and eat and be satisfied in Jesus. He alone is the one who can take your burdens. He is the alone is the one that can satisfy your soul. Take and eat. Take, woman. Take, man. Take and eat. It's for you. It's for you. It's for you. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Put your hope in him. And see Christ on the cross. His body broken for you. See his blood spilled for you. See him put in the grave for three days. See him raise, raised again. See the empty tomb. See him sitting at the right hand of the Father. Romans 8. Interceding for you. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Daily living to make intercession for you. See him who promises that I will bring you all the way home. See him. See him. Take and eat. Take and eat. Take and eat.
And Lord, as we come to the table now, I pray that believers in this room would take and eat. I pray that hypocrites would be chastened and convicted and would turn from their sin and truly repent. And if that's the case, then that they would come and take and eat. I pray that unbelievers would see the gospel and that you draw them to faith. That if they're remaining in their unbelief, that they should stay where they are and they should consider Jesus. And Lord, as we take and eat, may we see the sign of our crucified Lord. May it assure our hearts of your love for us. May it nourish us, nourish us, and may it unite us to one another. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.